it's not your fault but at some point it is your responsibility because whilst you might be able to go to teachers and I've been to, to Buddhist counseling, psychotherapy, I've trained in it, coaching, I've done all sorts of different interesting, fantastic things. And these are guides, these are people that can support you and teach you, but at the end of the day, once you say, I am 100% responsible for my life, that is when change is possible. Welcome to the Recovery and Transformation Podcast, the show that links personal health with societal well-being. I'm your host, Samir Dosani. I'm an activist, a PhD student, and a health coach based out of Johannesburg, South Africa. This show explores the root causes of disease and talks about how people are recovering and transforming every day. Hi, and welcome to another podcast. My guest today is health coach and business owner, Caroline St. John Loder. I first met Caroline about a year ago when she gave a workshop to me and a bunch of other aspiring coaches, and I was immediately impressed with her no-nonsense attitude to life and to coaching. In this discussion, we go over some of her personal story, talk a bit about the difference between coaching and psychotherapy, and then we get into some depth about the coaching process itself limiting beliefs, and how it's possible for an individual to become a better version of themselves. As always, please remember to like this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, leave a comment, and share with your friends and family. With that, please enjoy my discussion with Caroline St. John Loder. Caroline St. John Loder, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, where would you like me to start? In well, what do you do of- these days? Uh, what do I do these days? I run yeah. two businesses. Uh, one of them is a uh, mentoring business for the nutrition and health coaching profession. So I've been doing that since 2007. And I also run another business, which is uh, providing a very kind of, what would I say, thorough training for health coaching. So that's the Health Coaches Academy. And we train health coaches to get out there and make a difference in the world. Sounds fantastic. And how did you come to coaching? So maybe if you don't mind, we can jump back way to yeah, the beginning. Sure. And I know there's a story about you in France as a young girl. Would you like to yeah. share that story? Sure. Um, I suppose it is connected in a way because I think it was the start of my family going in the wrong direction. You know, we were a happy family, three children. You know, I remember my childhood being amazing. And then we went on holiday to France. We were driving from uh, Paris down to Chartres. And as we went on a road called the A10, actually, which is a very dangerous road, we had a car accident and my sister was killed. So she was eight, I was six. And I think that was kind of the start of my whole family being quite fragmented, which ended up in, you know, all sorts of marriage breakdowns and all sorts of different things. When you say your family was fragmented, what does that mean exactly? Well, after that, I think my parents, I mean, this is really what has started my whole fascination with um, how do you, irrespective of what's gone on in your background, how do you live life well? After that happened, obviously my parents were in a terrible state. The circumstances were full of blame. You know, whose fault was it? And my brother and I were put into boarding school. So at seven, I was sent away to boarding school, which wasn't great for me because then you didn't have, you didn't have, you know, counselling at that time. I mean, clearly I had post-traumatic stress from, I broke my neck, I broke my leg. Um, But there was no counselling. It was just, well, let's let's brush it under the carpet and off you go to, to boarding school. And it was really just the start of, of you know, my, my father got ill, he died when I was 14, my parents split up when I was 12. And it was really a bit of a sort of catalogue of disaster. 
And I think that when I started my early adult life, I knew that there was something missing in my development that I needed to go on some kind of journey to get complete. And that's what really sparked the whole interest in human behavior and human potential and what gets in the way of it. Right, so let's talk about that. So a lot of people have at least one, probably several traumatic experiences in their youth. Not everyone sort of gets through that trauma. So I take it from the way you tell that story, you would probably think that your, your father, for example, didn't really survive his trauma in a, in a meaningful sense. No, he didn't. He didn't, neither did my mother. And I think part of that is because if you don't acknowledge you know, what is really going on, if you don't find some kind of outlet for, and process, I think we can get over anything. However bad it is, I think we get over anything, but we need to go through a process to be able to release that figure out what we made it mean, you know, and then sort of set our life on a new course. And at the time it was like, well, you know, the, the, the way they dealt with it was to brush everything under the cockpit. We didn't have any pictures of my sister Susanna. It was all put away. We're not going to talk about it. We're going to change our life. We're going to move from here. We're going to move to there instead. We're just going to create a new life. And you can't create a new life without letting go of the old one and dealing with whatever is in the way. That's not possible. So how did you, I mean, you are very young when all this happens. Um, mm. you're, you're 14 years old when your father dies. So that adds another. So, so for you, I'm just imagining it's not just one trauma. There is trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. Yeah. At what point in your life do you realize that you yourself have to take some time to figure this out? 13. <laughs> when you're 13 years old, you already 13. start to, you already, you already have the maturity to say, okay, something's wrong with me. I need to, I need to. Yeah. I remember very clearly, I remember exactly where I was sitting, going, this is not okay. This is just not okay, and I'm on my own. It's a very strong feeling. So my father at that point was dying. He was in hospital. My mother and I weren't speaking to, get to, to each other, and my life was just in a mess, and I realised I'm on my own. And that's something that's, that's sort of, you know, carried through with me, really, which is that, and funny enough, you said earlier, it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. That is a lesson I learned when I was very young because... When you, I think first of you blame yourself, I mean, certainly when you have a sister, you have survivor's guilt because you can't understand it. You're six and you're alive and she's not. And it's very easy to go into some kind of self-blame for anything that's going on. And it's not your fault, but at some point it is your responsibility because whilst you might be able to go to teachers and I've been to, to Buddhist counseling, psychotherapy, I've trained in it, coaching, I've done all sorts of different interesting, fantastic things. And these are guys, these are people that can support you and teach you, but at the end of the day, once you say, I am 100% responsible for my life, that is when change is possible. And at 13, you're already ready to say that, that I, I'm 100% responsible for my life? Not quite. It was the start of the journey because it was like, something's wrong here and I'm on my own. So walk us through that. So what was that? Was there something that precipitated that at age 13 or, or what, what led to that chain of thought? Yeah, it's funny. Um, with all the trainings that I've, I've done, I realized that when you were young, you kind of make a decision about life. Something bad happens, you make a decision. And the younger that decision is made, the kind of harder in a way it is to identify it and then to make a different decision. But around that time, I had a best friend who was also sort of quite equally damaged by life. And um, we'd had a falling out, and I don't know why. She just stopped talking to me. And she was everything to me at the time, because my father was dying, my mother was with somebody else, and my best friend suddenly just stopped talking to me. And that was the moment I sat down by a river and just looked at the river and just went, I have nothing. I am completely on my own. 
And I think that was the moment when, you know, um, that was the main thing. I think that was the decision that at that point was, I'm on my own. There is nobody, nobody coming to help. And whilst I hadn't at that age figured out what I was going to do about it, that was a very strong sort of um, clarity that there really wasn't anybody that was going to help me. And I was on my own. Yeah. So something is similar. I, I'm the father of a, of a soon to be teenage girl and, uh, you know, teenage girls stop talking to their best friends all the time. Um, so mm -hmm. something as similar, simple as that um, is what sort of precipitated your, your crisis. Yeah. Yeah, well, she didn't speak to me for a year. So, you know, at that point when you don't have anything else, you know, you don't have a family and you're, you're sort of one close best friend that just doesn't talk to you for a whole year. It was confusing. But later on, I did a process called the Hoffman process. I don't know if you've, you've, you've heard of it. I basically went on a journey from a very young age to sort of say, okay, whilst, you know, things are not in my life as I would like them, I've got to now go on a journey, you know, reading and learning. One of the things I did much later on was um, something called the Hoffman process and it's an eight-day process in the UK and actually it was designed by this guy who was a tailor in the US, Bob Hoffman, look him up, he's uh, Patrick Holford calls him a psychological, calls the process a psychological detox. When he was fitting people with their suits as a tailor he got to know them on a sort of physical, spiritual, you know, psychological level. And as through the years of being a tailor, he actually created this process that he called the Hoffman process. And it became sort of a bit of a worldwide thing. And there is now this incredible eight day process where you go there for eight days and for 12 hours a day, you look at this stuff and you bring it out and you think about the decisions you've made and you look at where you're cross and you're angry and you share in a big room with other people and you do pillow bashing and all sorts of weird, crazy stuff. But you kind of get clear on the points in your life where you made a decision, where you're currently stuck, where you're now acting out from that, which is that I'm not good enough or I'm not important or my parents have sent me away. And you make a decision and you go, oh, my goodness, I made that decision at that time. And it's not true. It's not true. That's the key. This belief that I have about me, about life is not true. And that's the key. As soon as you've got that, you can then go, well, so what is true? And that's the route to being able to recreate anything in your life. Sure. So it sounds like what you're describing is the, the concept of limiting beliefs, right? So when were you, when did you, how old were you when you were going through this, the Hoffman method and, and that sort of, when you were really sort of starting to wrestle with these demons? Um, that was in my 30s, actually. And uh, at different times, I've sort of gone into different things. I've gone into counselling. I trained in counselling later on. Um, I sort of read various different theories, but it wasn't really until I was in my 30s and 40s that, you know, we, you know, we, we muddle along. You know, I had three children, everything was okay. I'd done enough to sort of, you know, um, sort of self-development work uh, through some counseling and uh, I trained in counseling as well. But it wasn't until I was in my 30s and other areas of my life were not working out that I began to say, okay, fine, you know, we really need to stop now. And I am determined that irrespective of, of you know, my family members, my, my mother died when she was in her 50s as well because she never processed what was going on for her. It was not going to be that way for me. So it was really in my 30s and 40s that I began to look more closely at behavioural change. Um, and, you know, I suppose to commit 100% to have my life as I wanted it. So it was kind of like a process and a journey by stages, but it was really in my 30s and 40s where I committed 100% to doing nothing but looking at behavioral change and human potential and what Fantastic. was in the way of that. 
And, and so I, I take it from the way you tell the story that you, you trained as a counselor before that period. Is that correct? Mm. I did coaching first. And then I did counseling and psychotherapy. And then I moved into health coaching. Okay. It was in that order. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk. We're going to spend most of the discussion talking about coaching. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about um, counseling and psychotherapy. So what were the benefits to you when you sort of started working with a counselor and so on? And when you trained as a counselor, what were some of the, the changes that you noticed in yourself? What are some of the, the, the positives? Uh, what did you get from that experience? Well, with counseling, you know, I found that, um, you know, it was kind of useful, but there wasn't a process to move forward. It was like, let's talk about it and, and let's talk about our feelings. But it was like, well, okay, we've identified those, but what are we actually going to do? So somehow, you know, somebody used the phrase once, and this is no disrespect to counselors and psychotherapists, there are, the, you know, that what they do is fantastic. But to some extent, I thought it was rehearsing the problem. You know, we're talking about it. When I actually discovered coaching, went into that, went down that road, I thought, yeah, that fits much more with who I am because it's much more action orientated. It's saying, yeah, we, we understand that. You know, we talked about it. We get it. That's the decision you made. That's a limiting belief. We get it. But what you're actually going to do about it. So we're talking about some of the differences between psychotherapy and coaching, right? Yeah. Um, and for you, coaching was much more action oriented. So I'm curious, like, how, how did you, you know, most of us, um, well, I can't say most of us, but at least for me, I, I knew a lot more about um, psychology, psychiatry, and psychotherapy than I did about coaching, you know, even until very, very recently. So how did you come to coaching first? Hmm, that's an interesting question. The first time I did any sort of... I think, you know, that kind of saying, you know, when, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. You know, I, you know, I just had this burning desire to learn more. And I looked into nutritional therapy and I thought, did I want to do that? And I looked into counseling and psychotherapy and I did counseling and psychotherapy. You know, you don't know sometimes, you just like, you know, when you, you know, trained in, in, in sort of health coaching yourself, there's kind of like, you know, the light goes on. And actually I've been in business for um, many years. I've been um, CEO of a vocational college for 10 years, 12 years. And I loved what I did, but it didn't have meaning. And I think a lot of people that go on to train in something like coaching or counseling, psychotherapy or health coaching, you know, they sort of have a, a sense of purpose. There's a sense of something missing. I want something that kind of I feel more connected to. And that was happening. So in my corporate career, I'd run businesses since I was 17. So I was quite resourceful. And, um, but it was just lacking meaning. I was like, yeah, it's successful in making money, but you know, vocational training for graduates just wasn't doing it. So I did, there wasn't really, I mean, coaching wasn't a massive thing at that time. We're going back to sort of about 2001. So life coaching was there, but it's not, you know, in the spotlight in the same way that it is now. And certainly counselors and psychotherapists, you know, didn't, even at the time they, they regarded CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy as being a shortcut to therapy. You know, and CBT, you know, coaching and CBT is much, you know, more closely related. So when I did the counseling psychotherapy, which is where I met my business partner, who, um, you know, one of the founders of Zest for Life, and Patrick Holford, who we also went into business with in 2003, I did it and I enjoyed it, but there was a certain amount of feeling, well, this is sort of navel gazing. Tell me what's the process? I'm in my day-to-day -day life and I'm sitting here and I'm reactivated and something's happened. What, what skills and tools are you gonna give me to do something different? So it was like interesting, but it wasn't it. 
Now, at the end of qualifying, what was happening is that people were setting up their practices and women were turning to these counsellors to get uh, support for their health and weight loss issues. And they were actually getting quite frustrated and saying, I don't want to deal with this. No, I don't want to deal with people's health and weight loss. I don't know how to deal with people's health and weight loss. I'm a counsellor. I want to deal with proper counselling issues to do with childhood. But I thought, well, hang on a minute. If that's what people are doing, if that's what they need, then there's a service to provide. And that's how it sort of went on. But around that sort of, I can't remember the timeline exactly, but around the same sort of time, I did a two-day two day training with Curly Martin, um, who is a really great life coach trainer. I'm still in contact with her um, today. She's great. And she ran a company called Achievement Specialist. She was one of the UK's first life coaches. And I did the complete training with her at around the same time. And when I was comparing the two, I just thought, well, this is just it. You know, this is amazing. We're dealing with people's values. We're dealing with their vision. We're dealing with their limiting beliefs. We're getting to the heart and the nap of it. But we're then getting somebody to take action. But I want people to take action. You don't do something. It's all going to be terribly interesting. You are not going to make a shift in your life unless you take action. Fantastic. So what I'm hearing, Caroline, is that you were actually, in some ways, you were already kind of a coach before you trained as a coach in the sense that you were like thinking about like, what are the actual, like I'm learning all this stuff, but how do I put it into practice? Whereas a lot of us, and speaking as someone who's doing a PhD right now, a lot of us in academia mm, aren't necessarily drawn to that. We're just drawn to like, what's the next question? So we understand this about human behavior. What's the next question? What's the next question? But your, your mind, your drive was always how do I put this in practice and how do I help people put this in practice? Is that right? Yeah. How do we change? And how do we change? And how do we change now? It's not this kind of like, it's a long process and in therapy, you know, it's a long process and we've got to do this for time. No, I didn't accept that. And I think when you learn coaching, um, you know, and you can probably resonate with this is it's that you realize that you already do some of this stuff. Because coaching is what, you know, your favorite aunt or uncle used to do in the sort of more established communities. You'd go to that person because they would sit and listen and they'd help you figure out what you wanted to do. So coaching is a natural thing that we do if we're interested in people, if we're genuinely interested in people. And when you then go and learn it in some form of structure, you've got some coaching tools that you can then apply to deal with more broadly whatever comes up in that situation, not just with friends and family. So it was like coming home when I learned coaching. So, Oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure you have many stories like this. I only have one or two stories like this because I've been coaching much much less long than you have. But people who've been seeing, I mean, it's it sort of, I don't know. It breaks my heart sometimes when I see someone who's been in therapy since they were like 13, 14. I had one client who was in therapy since she was maybe 13, 14. Uh, saw me at age when she must have been 29 or 30. Um, and, you know, so that's what, 15 years of, of yeah. some kind of psychotherapy and frankly, very little to show for it. And then after, you know, eight weeks working with me, she's lost the weight, she's mobile, she can, you know, and, and she's wondering how much of her life she's put into to processes that, not saying they haven't been helpful, um, but they weren't what she needed. And that's really, I don't know, it, it's, it's rewarding for me as a coach to see that personally, but it's also like, what kind of society do we have when people are just wasting all this time. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Totally. And that's the concept of breakthroughs. It's like there is a breakthrough possible for everybody if you could spend enough time. You know, you talk about listening, but really when we're listening, what we're doing is we're creating a thinking environment for the other person. 
Now, mostly in conversations, as you know, people just want to talk, they want to transmit, they want to put their ideas across. And if you go to tell somebody a problem with usually about sort of four or five seconds, they'll be giving you advice. And you can figure a lot of this stuff out for yourself. You can find your own breakthroughs, but we don't live in a listening environment. We're not given time to think. We are in a transmission. We have information being transmitted to us all the time. And even from our nearest and dearest. So when we ask the question in the training, it's like how many people are really genuinely good listeners where you feel that you could go and talk to them without judgment, without interference, without advice, genuinely good listeners. And so many people don't even have one. So the fact that you become an expert listener to and for somebody, and I love the distinction of listening to somebody and for them. I'm listening to you. I'm listening to what you're saying. If I'm listening for you, I'm listening for what you're saying, but what you're not saying and communicating. Because my goal is that you have a breakthrough. Now, whether that's health, relationships, doesn't matter. My goal for you is that you get some kind of breakthrough. And I can't help you do that unless I really know and understand how to listen to and for you. And Caroline, have you found that sort of the equation has changed over the years? Because at the moment, like I'm thinking of especially some of my younger clients, like, you know, people who have grown up with sort of an iPhone in their pocket, always on Twitter and kind of um, always interested in transmitting information and their listening skills aren't particularly good. I mean, maybe I'm I'm asking a leading question now, but it feels to me like there's been a change and and that things weren't great when I sort of started working professionally, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 years ago. But it seems like it's even more challenging now. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And it's like we're kind of, this is not necessarily yet the generation that are going to be having the problems that we're going to be dealing with later. And I think certainly we're going to be needing to uh, extend our coaching skills to deal with, you know, digital detoxing. You know, what is the impact on these young brains? And we know that, you know, you you've got kind of like the the arrogance of youth, right? So it doesn't matter what your background has been. You can kind of, you know, you go out there in the world and you have this arrogance. But if you don't have a sort of sense of kind of self-esteem and who you are, it begins, begins to unravel later on, usually when you're in your 30s. What we don't know is what the outcome's going to be of the way people have been brought up now. And the, you know, your influences would be your small circle. When I was young, it would be the, you know, your peers and your parents and your teachers. That was it. You know, the TV we would watch was minimal because there was hardly anything on. I'm not going to re- reveal my age, but hey. Um, but BBC now, One and BBC what? Two, yeah. <laughs> oh, hang on. We had ITV and Channel 4. <laughs> but it wasn't a big thing in our lives. You know, we would read magazines or newspapers, but we would have to wait a week for them to come out. So we didn't have this information overload. So what I'm slightly concerned about is really what are the what, what is going to be the outcome? And I think we will need to definitely bend and mold the way that we coach to um, adapt to and deal with whatever the issues are because I think that this generation the generation is coming through a one big experiment yeah Yeah. I want to go back to something we talked about earlier Caroline and that's this idea of limiting beliefs I just want to remind you um, so you gave a training that I attended over a year ago here in Johannesburg Um, at the end of that training there was a woman um, I won't remember her name but her name's not important but uh, she said something to the effect of um, I will never finish this course because, you know, I'm a failure. And that was her limiting belief. And the way she articulated it was so powerful. <laughs> it was like, it was like, this is my identity. My identity is so, so, you know, we're used to, or I'm, 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 you know, as coaches, we come across different limiting beliefs and some are more Ooh. challenging than others. And it strikes me that if someone at their core has, it strikes me, first of all, that that limiting belief is kind of everyone's limiting belief. <laughs> like we all yeah. believe that we're not good enough, right? Yeah. Um, 
but but what do you do when someone it feels like someone's identity is wrapped up in their limiting beliefs like how do you how do you talk them through that well for me um i, I did a I, I did some very I, I i do a lot of training i have to be in the space of possibility because i think in the world there isn't you know day-to-day -day conversations around people there isn't so i have to be in the space of people who are you know, talking like this, who are full of possibilities. So I've done an awful lot of training. And what I needed is some of the breakthrough moments. And there's been, if I look back, there's been pivotal moments. I call them defining moments where you go, oh, you have a shift. It's a breakthrough where you see something differently. <laughs> One of them was, I was in this workshop with about 150 people and the leader just kind of came over to me, the big six foot six man looked at me and he went, there is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. Why don't you choose the life you've got? Those two words. And it was in the context of a, you know, like a, a sort of big sort of CBT training program that was all about getting breakthroughs for yourself. But it was it was just a moment and the way it was delivered and the way it had been delivered in the context of what we'd been learning that day. It was about four o'clock that afternoon. It just hit me. And I went, of course, there's nothing wrong with me. It was that sort of breakthrough moment and the concept of choosing the life that you've got. So going back to, to the person, you know, that believed they were a failure. What I often do is to say, okay, well, tell me the first time you ever felt that. And they can usually come out with a memory and they say something like, well, I don't know if this is related, but when I was 11, go, well, yeah, it's probably related. <laughs> That's what popped up when I asked the question. And then one young girl, I remember, I was about 32. So it was a training in London. And um, she had done so many qualifications, it was ridiculous. I mean, she was you know, coming from, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And she was doing more and more training. And at the time it was a, it was a, a training program for getting people to get over themselves so that they could get out there and practice. So I said to her, okay, well, take, take back, tell me when you first felt that feeling. So tell, you know, what, what's driving you right now that's got you on this, this endless treadmill? Tell me the first time you ever felt like that. And she sort of looked up and somebody's kind of looking up or down, you know, that they're really thinking. And she said, well, I was 10 and I was in a maths class and I got something wrong. And the maths teacher said to me, you will never amount to anything. That's it. You will never amount to anything. And at that point, she made a decision to prove this teacher wrong. She was still doing it at the age of 32. I said, well, you know, <laughs> how many times, how, how much more of your life would you like to spend proving this teacher wrong? And she said, yeah, so this teacher is still doing the same job now in the same school. <laughs> okay. And that was it. She was able to sort of see it. And she then was able to bring humor to it, which is this, this is so crazy. Yeah, I really get it. Now we get, we, you understand why you keep doing all of these courses. Let's decide whether or not you want to do them for you, because you're never going to prove her wrong, because she wasn't right in the first place. Yeah. And it's that sort of thing. No, for sure. And it's amazing how much of this, like the connection between the limiting belief and the childhood trauma, um, we we just ignore day to day. Like, like um, in my case, it was something very obvious. Um, you know, my house had burned down when I was nine years old and it was a traumatic time in our life. And it's like, it's, it, it wasn't until, I think it was that same day where this event happened when someone asked me a question, someone who had no coaching experience at all and was doing it for the first time in her life and was literally reading it off a paper. And I was like, oh crap. Oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> like I've been doing this all wrong. <laughs> So it's amazing. What did how... she ask you? Do you remember? Um, what did she ask you? 
you know, it was, I mean, it was in a very remote voice. It was like, when is the first time you think you felt this? Something like that, right? And so there was no, she, she poor thing. I, I don't mean to pick on her, but she, just to say that, that, that yeah. you know, she, she hadn't developed the kind of active listening skills, the coaching skills and so on. She was someone who had signed up for the training, but hadn't been able to come until the last day. Like okay. it, was, it was a bit unfortunate for her. Um, but the the maybe because she was asking it in such a remote way because I'm someone like I can have a chat with someone I can connect with someone I, I don't have to get into the coaching space or being coached space if I'm having a chat with someone right but yeah. because I couldn't connect with her it kind of forced me to think oh crap there's nothing to do but answer her question and her, her, her question is taking me to a very uncomfortable place um, but okay. it's a place that I needed to be in right so, so it's the question so the, this is the thing what you're talking about, which is brilliant, which is that, you know, even in a sort of an experienced, in the hands of somebody who's inexperienced, when somebody asks a powerful question in the right way, it kind of enables you to, to access a part of your brain that you, you don't necessarily talk to. Because our internal wisdom, some people call it the soul or the spirit, I like to call it the internal wisdom, it's all there. We have everything that we need to heal and repair and to be the best version of ourselves, it's all there. Not one of you is incomplete. If you look inside your brain, yours is as complete as mine. It's all there. It's a question of accessing it. So somebody asked you a question that was actually not too far off the, the, the button in terms of what you need to think about. But questions have the power to shut somebody down or to unlock them. And you've probably you know, experienced this a lot now, but when you get the question right for the person and what's right for you might not be right for the next one to unlock them, that's where the power is for that person. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I, I joked in a previous episode, I've joked with the other coaches that I, I didn't enter this to, um, to do sort of deep spiritual work with my clients. But a lot of what I do is deep spiritual work with my clients, because that's, yeah. what, that's what they need. And um, yes. it's been powerful to see that. And, you know, people who, um, you know, as, as we sort of move the discussion more towards what health coaching means, um, you know, I'm someone who, who came with a whole lot of knowledge in terms of my study of human evolution and other things about yes. what I think a healthy diet is. Um, and I was giving that advice for free <laughs> for years before I, before I did coaching, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah. But, you know, there, there are, and there are some people like my parents, I think, changed their diet quite a bit and so on. And there are people who listen to me. Um, but that alone was not powerful enough. That alone was not, that advice was not, it's not what many people need to hear. Um, it, and it may not be, what I'm learning now is it's not even the first step for many people. Although we're, we, when we learn health coaching, we learn, you know, first get the diet right, then worry about whatever and so on. But different people are going to want to go in a different order, uh, depending on what they need. Yeah. Mm, exactly. Depending on what they need, not what we're trying to provide, not the box we're trying to fit them in with our programs, but what they need yeah. So why do you think the transition from, from coaching to health coaching, why do you think that was such an important part of your own development? Because I lost my health. So I had three uh, children in quite close succession. And when I had the third one, I was exhausted. And, you know, you go to the, I think it's just sort of similar worldwide, really, but certainly in the UK, you go to the doctors and say, I don't feel very well. I'm exhausted. I'm irritable. And they'll go, oh, you're fine. And they run a series of tests. They're going, you're fine, normal normal well this is not normal i can't even walk up the flight of stairs i'm so exhausted my hair's falling out my nails are weak i'm irritable with the children i just feel really unhappy and um i ended up going to a nutritional therapist and um, i sort of dragged myself into her office exhausted and she was great 
But she did what a lot of nutritional therapists and sort of advisors, consultants do, and she told me what to do. And she gave me a long, complicated list to expensive supplements, make all these changes. And I went back into my already ridiculously busy life, exhausted with a long list of changes, went back two weeks later and, you know, was told that the changes that I've made were wrong and more supplements. And I just thought, this is too overwhelming. And I thought, okay, as per usual, back to 13, it's down to you, Carolyn. You're going to have to do this. There is no one. The doctor can't help you. The nutritional therapist can't help you. It's down to you. Now, that would be put on my gravestone, right? <laughs> down to you. That's fantastic. So off I went on a journey to put yeah. my own health back together again. And that's how I moved into health coaching. Yeah. Before we, we walk down that path with you a little bit, I mean, just can we spend a minute on this? That the, the, the frustration with the doctors, the frustration with the nutritionists, how universal is that? I mean, how many times do you hear this story? Someone comes to you and says, I've been on X diet. I've talked to my doctors. I've been following the doctor's advice. Nothing is working for me. I mean, it, it can't just be me that's hearing that from almost every client, right? All the time. So before we started um, running health coaching programs, you know, I did a bit of a, well, quite a lot of research first and, you know, went around to some of the kind of weight loss groups. Uh, and just we just did a lot of research on the statistics of how many people are actually able to go and be healthy and successful and maintain weight loss and things like that. And the results were appalling. Some results showed only 14% of heart disease patients were successful in changing their diet. Do you think they don't want to live? Of course they want to live. They just don't know how to change. Weight loss, 95% regained it. And the, the big sort of weight loss groups were the, were the ones that were kind of like recycling this. It's like people would say to it's, us, hey, I go to this slimming club because it works every time. It's a great money-making program, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like, yeah. I mean, this is where I really get frustrated with the industries because they're, and, and people don't see it. You know, I, I was able to lose the weight and then I gained it back on and now I'll go and lose it yes. again. Like it's, it's a, it's a. Yeah, yeah. So, so they need proper help, you know, it's like you, you can't pay sort of five quid, you know, to sort of turn up to a group to get weighed, to get a couple of recipes and go. It's a sort of a deeply psychological process. I think changing your diet, changing your health, changing your lifestyle, it's not a, it's not, here's a diet sheet, go change your life. I've got to change everything from, from what I do from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep to what I do to de-stress for comfort with my friends, with my husband with my family, when I go on holiday, what we do at birthdays, everything has to change. How could you possibly do that without a health coach? How can you figure all that out? Yeah, and I mean, ultimately what we're talking about, so we've talked about um, identity, we're beginning to talk about mindset, but ultimately one has to sort of develop a new identity as like, um, you know, I am being, I, I mean, to give a silly example, like when you're, when you have to sort of force yourself to go on a morning jog, um, that's a different mentality. You may do the same two miles as someone who calls themselves a jogger, um, but mm-hmm. it's just a different reality, right? When you're a jogger, you are the person who does the, the morning jog, whatever it is, right? That's it, um, yeah. And that's so it's, it. just, it's just about trying to, to discover that identity that serves you. And, and it's been, mm-hmm. an, it's really eye-opening to find out that some of this is malleable. Like we think that we are who we are and we'll never change that. But a lot of it is malleable, isn't it? Totally. I mean, I'm, you know, really kind of looking so much more into neuroplasticity at the moment. And the, the direction I want to go more into is uh, the whole thing about positive psychology. So uh, I'm studying that at the moment and neuroplasticity. So, um, you know, and, and the, I think the connection between health and happiness, which comes first, what's really important. They don't, you can't separate them out, be healthy and not happy or happy, happy and not healthy. 
yeah. and the connection between the two. But certainly in neuroplasticity, you know, what we do actually physically begins to shape the brain in the way we want to become. Yeah. So, and you can mold that in whatever way you want. Um, yeah. And I'm really sort of studying that because I think for some people when they can see it from a, I mean, there's a great book I'm reading at the moment called The Source, which is where um, a psychiatrist takes our concept of the secret, the law of attraction, and puts it into a really sort of scientific language that, that proves that it is a real phenomenon <laughs> that you can tap into. I think when sometimes you can give something to people in a logical way and you can explain, well, look, you know, really with health coaching, we're going into the realm of neuroplasticity so that you can really change who you are as a person and how you think when you get up. Otherwise, what's easy is the well-trodden path so we could go do something completely different that's really uncomfortable for a couple of weeks and then we'll go back to what's more comfortable and more known. Yeah. Now, it is possible to sort of beat down a new pathway that becomes a new pathway, a new neural pathway, and a new pathway that you go down. That's neuroplasticity. But we have to make sure that we change our habits for long enough. And we found that really it was nine months for somebody to go and do that for nine months until it became unconsciously competent in their new behaviours. That's who they were. Yeah, nerves that fire together, wire together, as I say, right? So it's, it's it. about, it's yeah. about, and that, that saying in, in neuroscience really um, underlies the, the importance of what we talk about, which is just building good habits. When you are that's the true. person, when you are the person who wakes up and goes for a jog, I mean, that's your habit. That's, that's what your brain is looking to do. Um, that's it. And if you want to be that person, then practice it and eventually you'll get there, right? That's it. So, um, you know, three months is a good starting point because when we've done something for three months, you know, we, we are into a new habit and we've gone, you know, through a lot of the kind of barriers to success and we've developed all sorts of different things. But nine months is better because, you know, if you can support somebody through a nine month period as a health coach, what you've then got is kind of like by the birthdays or Christmas and holidays, you've got those challenges. And so you can actually develop strategies across the whole realm of somebody's life, not just a, a three month window because yeah. it comes unstuck at different times. For and sure. until we've sort of been on that road for a period of time where we, we've got strategies for absolutely everything, there is always a risk to go back to something that is more comfortable, especially if your environment, the people that you live with, have got a vested interest in you remaining stuck in the way that you did things before. Yeah, no, for sure. So, so let's go back to your journey. So, so you, your health is, is a bit of a disaster. Um, yeah. You figure out you're going to take responsibility <laughs> yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what, you know, were there a specific, um, at the time, I imagine that health coaching wasn't really a thing. <laughs> so no. so no. how did you sort of come to health coaching through this, what must've been a convoluted path? Yeah. I mean, it first popped up in the U S in 2008 and uh, this is now 2002. And I was like, okay, right. So I've got to sort this out myself. Let's go learn. So I got a load of books, watched a load of stuff, videos, DVDs. I began to learn about it. And I came across Patrick Colford. Now I'd known Patrick Colford already. So for those of you that don't know, he's an Institute for Optimum Nutrition um, and one of a sort of very widely published author in the area of health. Now I'd known him because when my mother got sick, she got sick when she was 57, she died at 59 when I was pregnant with my first child. A lot of unresolved psychological stuff connected with, you know, she'd been driving the car when my sister died, was killed. So there was so much guilt associated, which was definitely connected with the type of cancer that she got. And I remembered that she had all of Patrick Holford's books on the shelf. You know, as, you know, she was trying to sort her health out. You know, at 57, she realized she'd lost her health and she went on a journey to try and regain it, but it was too late for her. And I think that, that was also one of the things that made me really committed to health coaching because if I'd known 
then what I know now, I would have been able to help her save her own life sooner. She, she should be alive today, so should my dad. If they'd known what I know now, they could both be alive today. And I think that is why I've stuck with this longer than any other career, because it's that passion is like, oh my goodness, I could have <laughs> helped my parents save their lives. The best I can do is to help save my own, that of my husband, my, my kids, and to sort of inspire the people around me. So um, I went to Patrick Holford's uh, talks. I followed his program, which was brilliant, blood sugar balancing. I've never changed because it's a fantastic eating program. And I put my life back together again. And in six months, I got my own health back. I was so impressed by it. I thought, I have to work in this field. So Patrick was doing a talk in Brighton about what he called at the time the Holford Low GL Diet. It's kind of still called that, but that was the name of the book that he was launching. And I just went up to him at the end of it. And I said, Patrick, I said, I think that this is great. It's brilliant. I followed your program. I've got my own health back. And I want to bring this to the high street. Do you want to talk to me about taking this to the high street, you know, doing, doing this in a widespread way. And he said, yeah, sure, send me a proposal. So to cut a long story short, uh, myself, Wendy Nagel, who was a, a psycho psychologist who uh, I'd met on the counselling training, and Patrick, we started running groups, combining psychology, coaching and nutrition in groups to help people learn how to be healthy and to take a psychological approach um, to uncovering their blocks and creating through coaching a vision, a powerful vision of the new life they wanted to create that lined up with their health goals. What year are we in now, Caroline? 2003. 2003. So, so yeah. you are in that sense of a pioneer of, of this space I and mean, you're doing it before. Yeah. There's no model for you to follow. You guys have to make your own model. We wrote it week by week. So what would happen is we get groups of people in. So firstly, we did a, a trial for eight weeks, which the results are in the Journal of Orthomolecular Medicine. And we got stunning results um, over that eight week period. We, we tested the homocysteine, everybody's homocysteine level went down. Um, I can't remember all the tests done, but anyway, the results are there, but we, cholesterol, we did a whole range of different tests. We put them on supplements. We got them to follow the low GL program and we also gave them um, coaching. And what would happen then, you know, at the end of the eight weeks, so we we're going, thank you, this is brilliant. The trials are fantastic. They lost weight. They were amazing. They, you know, they were motivated. They were inspired. They'd learned so much. But they said, we want to carry on. So we were like, oh, right, okay. Well, we don't really have any more material, but okay. Give us two weeks. So they brought in another 17 of their own friends and we started group programs. And then what happened, and this is the genius part of it, is that we dealt with the issue in the week. So we were like, okay, what are your problems? Then we would go off and we'd write a coaching tool based on the problem that came up in the group. Then we'd write the next one. So we had no material. We were writing it on the Sunday before the groups ran on the Monday and the Tuesday. But from that perspective, it wasn't written and then tested. It was tested and then written. You see what I mean? Based on the real problems. Mm. That's so good because, I mean, especially speaking as an academic now, a lot of what, um, a lot of what we think works in a laboratory setting or in a sort of book setting yeah. or in a historical setting like it doesn't actually work um exactly and so you know doing the field testing before you write the material is is a great way to do it isn't yeah. it well it was well, it was kind of by accident because they wanted us to start before and it, it was just serendipitous that it was done that way around because sometimes we'd go and think this would be a great coaching tool and it just bombed or this would be a good thing to teach them on nutrition zero interest so we would literally just ask them all the time. And funnily enough, when we said to them, what would you call this program? And we gave them a list of names. They chose Zest for Life because they said, that's what you gave us. You gave us, you gave us our Zest for Life back. And that's why we called the consultancy in the UK. That's why we called that Zest for Life. What a lovely story. Um, thanks so much. So 
before we, as we move to the the end of the conversation, I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about how the coaching part in some ways comes first and the psychological part kind of, kind of comes first. And we talked even a bit about neuroplasticity, which is great, but I've had weird experiences, Caroline, and I wonder if you can help explain them to me. So, so the, the, the weird experience is when I started this, as I say, so I'm talking now of when I was your student and when I was sort of doing my homework and I was finding volunteers every week and so on. Um, I had a particular volunteer who came to me saying with really with psychological issues. And I did not have the tools to deal with it. So I just focused on my homework says you must do blood sugar balancing. Like, so I just focused on, <laughs> I just focused on the, I focused on the homework, right? Because I, and I was very honest, this is, I wasn't being paid for this. This was a, a volunteer thing. And I was very honest. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. I cannot help you with your friends and your sister. And like, that's not where I am right now, but we got the diet, right? And I, she was one of those who kept back coming back to me. She wanted to be a volunteer all the time. Um, and her relationship with her sister improved, her relationship with her friends improved, her relationship with herself improved. Um, even though that wasn't the focus of my coaching until maybe the very end, it had improved before it became the focus of my coaching. So there's something about getting the hormones right, getting the energy levels right, that then maybe gives one the preparedness to do the emotional work in one's own life. I don't know, what's, what's your take on those 100%. kind of experiences? Totally. And sometimes people can heal you know, they can heal anywhere. I mean, there, there are there are certain people who have got psychological issues that they need drugs. And there are a lot of people that experience mood shifts and depression and stress that actually in the space of coaching, where they're looking at their life and they're looking at some of the things that they can change, that as part of that process, that just clears up all by itself. Because we're looking at what's wrong with somebody's life. Let's just say you've got somebody who is struggling you know, and supposedly has been diagnosed with psychological issues, but this person has been taught to not prioritize their own needs and to put them at the bottom of the list. This person is not going to thrive. Once they can identify that they're not taking any time out for themselves, they've got a deep level of resentment for everybody around them because they're a people pleaser and they're just not prioritizing their own well-being, and they're not having any fun and they don't know what their values are and they certainly haven't set their life up in accordance with their values. If you can coach them through to doing that, what you'll see is that they begin on the upward spiral. They begin with the first step. Now, what happens when we achieve something? We feel good. You acknowledge it and reward it as the coach and you keep pulling them up on the upward spiral. And somewhere in that process, we don't necessarily know which rung of the spiral is the thing that actually is the breakthrough where they can suddenly look and go, I feel happy, I feel good. So exactly what you did, it was a, it was a kind of an organic process in coaching and getting somebody to look at their life and look at what's not working and yeah. put in place what would work better. That happens. Yeah, I wonder if there's not an even more sort of physio physiological mm, take on that, though, because, I mean, you know, when we are eating whatever foods, you know, sort of standard diets, carbohydrate rich diets, when we are, you know, giving our, our brain hits of dopamine from sugar all the time, yes. uh, that can have that can have certain effects. And when we take that away, I mean, what I felt with her, this is I, I never articulated this to her, but what I felt with her was just the noise in her head just became a lot less because she wasn't always, she was someone who was also diabetic. Like she wasn't all, before I worked with her, she was off her meds by the end of it. Um, so like, she was always just worried about um, something. Um, she was a worrier. And that noise in her head began to decrease significantly and she could focus on what she thought was important. Um, and I oh. think there was, there was both a psychological <clears throat> and a physiological side to that. 
Yes, we probably haven't spent enough time on the physiological, really, because I, I kind of take that for granted. Once you once you get somebody on the right eating plan, so many of the, the sort of the, the, the physicality, the you know, the physical body will begin to change anyway. So in the original trial that we did, um, well, we, those times we, the years when we were running groups, um, a couple of cases that I particularly remember. So Vanessa who had had terrible PMS her entire life. She balanced her blood sugar, followed the program. She said, you know, I'm just like a different woman. I've regained that whole week. Somebody else who we suspected food intolerances, they went and did a food intolerance test. They had two pages of food intolerances and they gave those up and within a week, they were released from things that had been, you know, impacted them for, uh, you know, since they were 17. Um, Take somebody who is prone to having outbursts of anger and it's impacting their relationships, you know, some people have got, you know, incredible, some people, some people can deal with blood sugar imbalances, for other people, it turns them into lunatics who can't function. So it goes without saying, if you take somebody onto the right program, you know, and follow a blood sugar balancing diet, that physically they improve, but the knock-on effect, this is what you're saying, the knock-on effect is more widespread, and they look at some of the other conditions and realise it has a positive impact on that. So physically, spiritually, psychologically, you know, mentally, environmentally, habitually, it has a positive impact on, on all, yes. Yeah, it's very powerful, isn't it? Um, as we move to the end of the, the uh, discussion, Caroline, you know, the, the name of this show is Recovery and Transformation. And my hope is that we can give our listeners um, some ideas for how they can move towards transforming their own lives and recovering from whatever it is they need to recover from. So I wonder, are there any sort of practical tips that you can give to people um, based on your own experience in terms of what people can do even in their own lives, even in the next day and the next week that would get them on the right track? Yeah, I would, I'd probably say that, you know, is to just know we are no fixed thing. And, you know, we're not our thoughts and feelings. We're not our limiting beliefs. We are no fixed thing. So if your life isn't working as you want it to be right now, we are all capable of extraordinary change. Now, it helps if you get yourself onto some kind of program, if you work with a coach, if you start going down that, that road. But however you're feeling right now, you know, humans have the capacity at all times for extraordinary change and for potential. And we are no fixed thing. And if you feel there's something about your life that's not working and you want to change it, and I promise you, it's what my life has been dedicated to, you can. Fantastic. Thanks so much. And where can people go to learn more about your work? Um, well, probably Health Coaches Academy. So that would be the place to start. The .com website will be available soon. So that's healthcoachesacademy.com. Uh, the website is under construction at the moment. If you're in the nutrition profession, if you want to look, you know, if you want to work with a nutritional therapist or health coach, then check out zestforlife.com in the UK. And that's with the number four. And that's if you would like to work with a nutritional therapist who's also now trained in health coaching, of course, <laughs> zestforlife.com with a number four. Fantastic. Caroline St. John Loader, it's been a real pleasure. And I look forward to continuing the discussion uh, sometime soon. It's been great to be with you, Samir. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Caroline St. John Loader. For more podcasts like this one, please do like and subscribe wherever you're listening. I'm Samir, your health coach and PhD student based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Thanks for listening.